Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another amazing, tough tier <laughs> episode of Avatar the podcast comics edition comics edition that's right we are making our way through the search part two and let me tell you something the hits just keep on coming with the series the promise was great the search though my mind is blown right now i know oh my god i made a terrible terrible mistake i'm just gonna get this out right now Uh oh i'm reading as is greg the collected edition of The Search. And I read a couple pages too far and got a massive, exciting spoiler that I can't wait to talk about, but I have to keep my mouth shut this week. So yay me. <laughs> and I'm just going to be sitting here theorizing <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, I know the answer. I know. Yeah, and It's going to be painful. It's going to be very, very fun for me. Just to throw out even maybe fake theories and just watch Acorn squirm a little bit. You're like, no. <laughs> Anyways, I'm Booster Greg. That's Acorn Bandit. Hello. Hello. We missed you, both of us. We did. Specifically you, the one sitting down in the chair right there. That's right. You, listener. Before we dive into the episode, we have a couple more reviews to get into from the U.S. side of Apple Podcasts. Yes, I can't wait. Yes. Uh, the first one comes from Cracker Barrel 49. And they write, Ang Amazing Pod. Thanks, Acorn and Greg, for making this podcast. It is truly the best Avatar pod. I look forward to the comics and Korra. Keep up the good vibes. And then it's a fire emoji, a wave emoji. I call it a fart emoji, but it's air. But it means, <laughs> I don't know. And then four, I don't know what we call that. The A-OK, A-OK emoji. There we A-OK go. A-OK hands. A-OK yep. hands. Thank you, Cracker Barrel 49, for that wonderful five-star review. And we hope you're enjoying the comics so far. Yeah, we know we are. Our next review comes from C. Pritchard, who writes, Dear Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg, I love your podcast. The only reason I downloaded Apple Podcasts was to give you guys a five-star review. I really enjoy your commentary on the Avatar fam. Your friend, C. Oh, another one of the Spotify listeners coming in. I yeah, would think. also... Yeah. They gave us, everyone take note, they gave us a five-star written review so we could do what? We could read it. So we could read it. It's not time for that joke yet, Acorn. <laughs> we do it every time. I know. I know. I jumped right to it. I love it so much. It's grown on me. <laughs> it finally happened. Yes. <laughs> My planning has come to fruition. Yep. <laughs> the next review comes from HRXKHC, or as I like to call them, and they write O-M-A, which stands for Oh My Avatar. Mm -hmm. Hi, Greg and Acorn. I started listening when you were starting book two and listened to this podcast so much that I couldn't listen anymore because I was so used to it, but started on back on the invasion two days ago and I'm already caught up. I am sad now, though, because I haven't read the comics. I am only 11 and haven't been able to purchase them yet. I love this podcast and start and end my day with it. Oh. I can't wait to read the comics with you. Sorry for the long review. I just can't possibly express how much I love this podcast. And then, hold on, I got to get a calculator out for this one. Carry the four, <laughs> two, three, uh, 47 heart emojis and 52 heart eye emojis all mixed up and jumbled and ready to go. Mm -hmm. Just confetti of love in emoji form. Yes, yes. Well, friend, 
if you are unable to, or anyone out there is unable to purchase the comics, that's fine. You can still listen. We're kind of going through it like we do the episodes, right? But you could also hit up your local library, see if they mm-hmm. have them. I know uh, we had talked about that not too long ago, Acorn, where my library had some of the comics and I think yours, you said yours mm-hmm. did as well. Mine did too. Try yeah. giving that a shot. Yeah, give that a shot. Maybe it might even have it in digital format if you don't feel comfortable going to a library or are not near a library. Mm-hmm. Libraries are great. Libraries. I love my library. I do too, says the man who's married to a librarian. Yay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Our next review comes from Joshua Stitt, who writes, very amazing. Hello, I love your podcast. This was the first podcast I've ever listened to, and I loved it. I started after you finished book three, and I can't wait until you do the comics. Another one! Hey! There we go. It continues to blow my mind that we are some people's very first podcast ever. I know. What an honor. We're so happy that you're joining us. And also, welcome to, whenever you get here, I guess, welcome to the comics officially. We hope you're enjoying them. Yes, yes. The second to last review we're going to be reading comes from Minecraft Fun. I almost said 100, but it's really 10 mm-hmm. Almost got me on that one, Minecraft Fun 10 but not today. They start <laughs> off the review with this super happy face, and they write, I'm so happy. I love Avatar The Last Airbender way, way too much. And I'm so excited that there's podcasts about it. If you're reading this, The Legend of Korra is really good. It's a sequel to Avatar. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing? (laughs) Go watch it right now. Well, Minecraft fun. We can't. Believe me, we want to. We can't just yet for two very important reasons. One, we're recording right now. Two, (laughs) we're not there yet in continuity. We will get there. We know that it's the sequel series to Avatar The Last Airbender. I cannot wait because of how many crazy voice actors they hired for that. Mm -hmm. Like just the ones that I remember are mind blowing. And I can't wait to tell everyone about all those. And I can't wait because the stuff that is happening in the comics right now, I had no idea sets up so much of the story of Korra. Yeah. So believe me, we cannot wait. And with every episode for the comics that we release, we are that much closer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you so much for leaving that five star review. We both super appreciate it. And we'll get to Cora before you know it. Yeah. Our last review comes from, oh boy, what a doozy. <laughs> At sign, hashtag, dollar sign, ampersand, asterisk, parentheses, quotation mark, percent, dash, C, equal sign, slash, semicolon, colon, exclamation point, question mark, quotation mark. Well done. I committed to that. <laughs> you did. <I'm> <laughs> I wanted to get through the whole good. thing. <laughs> They write, love it with two exclamation points. I love this podcast. You two have great chemistry and I would totally recommend it to other Avatar fans. I stumbled across this on Spotify while looking for something to entertain myself. And I can't wait for you to cover Smoke and Shadow and The Legend of Korra. Keep up the good work. Love you guys. Also, they gave us their top five characters, which include Cabbage Merchant in the number five spot, followed by Zuko, Aang, Toph, and Katara. A listener after my own heart. I know. The Cabbage Merchant coming in. Katara number one, I guess. Sure, fine. Where's Sokka? Wait a minute. <laughs> Cabbage Merchant, Zuko, Aang, Toph. You just... You forgot someone in there. You forgot someone. Ampersand, hashtag, dollar sign. No. Et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> You just made an enemy of Greg. Mm. Oh, no. It's all right, because they came over from Spotify, left us a five-star review, and did the thing that I really love with the reviews, where they're just like, yeah, I recommend this to other Avatar fans. That makes me feel warm and Mm -hmm. fuzzy, despite the lack of a certain infamous water tribe warrior. 
I might add. Water tribe warrior idea guy. Idea with guy. A really cool sword and boomerang. Who also bends, not elements, mind you, but motivation. And sarcasm. And sarcasm. And humor. And my heart while we're at it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what great reviews. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as Acorn said earlier. Jump the gun on that. Jumping the gun on that. Remember, if you want your review read right here on the show, just go ahead and go head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star written review. Why, Acorn? Because if it's not written, we can't read it. That is right. And that's how the written language works. In fact, it In is. Fact. <laughs> All right, let's start this up. Welcome to the search part two, or as we like to call it. Hira today, gone tomorrow. That's right. And we start off this issue with Azula waking up to the soft touch of her mother's hand. The vision of Ursa pleads with her daughter to give up on her quest and tells her that Azula's true destiny lies elsewhere. Azula is caught off guard by this plea, grabbing Ursa's arm and telling her that she has proof that she is the rightful heir to the Fire Nation throne. IRL, however, Azula grabs Katara's arm and Sokka jumps to the aid of his sister by throwing his boomerang at the princess's forearm, which snaps her back to reality. Azula quickly realizes that the letter is missing and demands to know the location of her brother. Not too far away, Zuko sits with Aang and discusses the letter he stole from his sister. He believes that the letter confirms he is not actually Ozai's son, which to him makes perfect sense as Ozai had no problem with attempting to kill him, scarring him, and then banishing Zuko. Zuko believes that Ursa might have stopped Ozai from killing him the night she disappeared. Aang has a lot of trouble accepting this theory because that would make Azula the rightful heir to the throne which is not good news for anyone. And I think Zuko's like, oh, this is so great. And, and Aang's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is terrible. This is terrible. So Zuko finds hopes in the fact that he might not be the Fire Lord, which is a huge burden off of his chest. But Aang gets upset and wonders what that means for Zuko's reign. Mm-hmm. I love how the first part of this conversation reminded me a lot of our conversation last episode when we were talking about this reveal. Yeah. We were going back and forth going, wait, but that would explain so much. And then, wait, this can't be true. Yes. Or it shouldn't be true, yeah. which is exactly what Aang says. That happened, I feel like, so much when I was reading this book. I kept on going like, well, yeah, this is great. No, this is a bit, 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 bit. And I think that's the point, right? And they're blatantly mm -hmm. telling us in this dialogue between Zico and Aang, this is the point of this reveal is, is it true? Is it not true? It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. It's kind of good news, but it's also really terrible news. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I wanted to ask you this. Do you think that if Zuko is actually Ikem's son and not Ozai's, does that make the duality that he was struggling with in the animated series more interesting or less interesting? Oh, I would say less interesting. Why? Because then it's not a very clear, distinct split between Roku's lineage and Sozin's lineage, which we originally thought. Mm-hmm. It would mean, I mean, we know Ikem is a good guy mm. from what we've seen. And Ursa is a sweet, sweet person who comes from Roku's family line. So it would make his internal struggle less poignant, I guess. That's where my head went as well. And then I don't know how this kind of popped into my head. For me, it got more interesting because it becomes less about blood ties and more about nature versus nurture. Yeah. Which is super interesting. 
it can be compelling, but I feel like it's less compelling in this context than blood ties. Yeah, I keep on going back and forth with that. But I thought that, mm-hmm. like, I agree. Everyone knows based on my last episode that I'm still I am even after reading this one where spoilers, we don't get any confirmation in this. We're just getting more theorizing and stuff. I do not mm-hmm. believe for a second that Aikam is Zuko's dad. I believe that it is 100% Ozai because from the animated series, as you pointed out, absolutely, it's the more interesting take. It just makes sense. Like, you think that Ozai is going to let her wander off without him knowing? Come on. Yeah. Come on. But I, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. And they're mm-hmm. pretty much mine, which I like. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Validating my theories. Exactly. Validation. <laughs> I like it. So Aang and Zuko are kind of talking back and forth. And Zuko is almost relieved, right, that he might not be the rightful Fire Lord. And Aang is getting stressed out. It's like this like yin-yang balance, which is actually really cool for these two, where the less stress one gets, the more the other gets. And then mm-hmm. Azula walks up and finally finds her brother in Aang and yells about how Ursa told Zuko to steal the note and demands that it be returned. She mm-hmm. is full-on conspiracy theory. Ursa's out to get her. Yep, full-blown. Speaking of Ursa, we get treated to a flashback in the very next page of how, as a child, Azula had no problem burning flowers in the royal garden that weren't as pretty as the other ones. Ursa tells a young Azula to treat the garden with respect, but Azula ignores her mother and, instead, burns Zuko's butt for being a tattletale. (laughs) Ursa has had enough of her daughter's actions and sends her to her room. Ursa immediately holds Zuko, who doesn't understand why his sister has to be so mean. It turns out that Ozai was watching this encounter this whole time from a distance and silently notes the favoritism, or at least the perceived favoritism, and walks away. Mm-hmm. Which is such a heavy scene. Mm-hmm. Now that we know he read that letter mm-hmm. and believes Zuko is not his son. Oh, man. His wheels must be spinning. Exactly. It actually kind of makes him, in my opinion, a little more sympathetic. A little. A little, yeah. Not a lot. Like maybe 1%. Mm-hmm. Because imagine this. You're not a good person. I know it's hard for a lot of people, but you're not a good person. And the one person who you think you have some form of trust or as close to trust as you're going to get in your life with betrays it. And you're already a hothead. I don't think it's going to go over too well. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I'm actually surprised with his actions. I thought for sure then in there, in the Royal Garden, he would just burn it all down. But he doesn't. Yeah. I had that thought too. I mean, we see consistently over and over, and we're going to get to scenes that continue to show us this. Yeah. We know Ozai is a pretty sadistic person. He mm-hmm. seems to revel and relish in other people's misery, especially when it deals with power and the power that he has over them. In this kind of situation... I think he has restraint for a couple reasons because I had that same thought. Now that he's back at the palace, if he does something very publicly like that, I think it would eventually get out and change people's perception of him. And he is currently maybe not actively angling for the throne. I think he is passively. It's something that's on his mind. So he must be careful in the way that he conducts himself at the palace. Yeah, as a friendly reminder, too, he's not yet Fire Lord. This is in the past. And I have to go through my notes carefully because I feel like I might have on instinct wrote Fire Lord Ozai at one point and he's the <laughs> prince. So I'll be on the lookout yep. for that. It's just so easy. You're used to saying Fire Lord Ozai mm-hmm. for 
years now. And now he's Fire Prince Ozai. And it's weird. Second in line, even. Yeah. Jeez. All right. Well, weird. Anyways, we're still with Ozai because moments later, he meets with, how would you say this? Vashir? Yeah. I think last time we said Vakir. So that's the thing. As an aside, I think last episode we were saying Ikum and now we're saying Ikum. Previously, we probably said Vakir. Now we're going, uh, is it Vashir? Vashir, Vakir. Okay. So we'll say Vakir. We'll keep that going. Ozai meets with <laughs> that's Vakir. That's the downside of yes. written words. You don't quite know without a pronunciation guide. I think we see that with Final Fantasy as well. <laughs> with yes, the names, a lot yes. of the names, right? Uh, anyway. Titus, Titus. Titus, Titus. That's right. That's right. Ozai meets with Vakir of the Yuyan Archers, ordering the archer to kill Zuko's supposed father, Ikum, at the village of Hira. Vakir isn't just any old Yuyan archer, though. He is the best of the best. While every archer can pin a fly to a tree 100 yards away without killing it, Vakir can do it blindfolded. The archer gives that standard kind of evil assassin response of, Don't worry, my lord. No one will know that this is your order. But then Ozai kind of looks at him and goes, No, 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 no. I want you to sign it with my name. Mm. I want him to know who is taking him down. And the assassin obliges. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, this is a big power move. He's like, I don't freaking care. Tell him. Tell that dirty peasant who's coming after him. That kind of reminds me in a weird roundabout way of the Bill Murray urban legends. Have you heard some of these? No, what? So there's one, there's a whole bunch of these. There's these weird stories that Bill Murray did things and no one knows if they can believe it or not. One of them, I'm going to go over all of them. One of them is such. Big house party happens. Bill Murray walks in to this random house party. It's, I think it's like a college party or something. Uh-huh. It starts doing the dishes. One of the party <laughs> attendants looks over and sees Bill Murray doing the dishes. And Bill Murray looks over to him and goes, go ahead, tell people. They'll never believe you. What? Finishes the dishes and leaves. And I don't know to oh believe the story God. or not. <laughs> I don't either. That's like, that's like equal parts people making up a story, but also Bill Murray's behavior. Like I could see him doing that. Yeah, but that's what this kind of reminds me of is Ozai wants Ikem to know that it's him. And if anyone overhears it, who are they going to believe? Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Okay. Prince Ozai of the Fire right. Nation. Sure. Taking out this random actor. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> An actor from a backwater right. town in the Fire Nation. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that kind of reminds me of. I do want to make a point though. So we've seen Yakir before. We know him from the Rough Rhinos. Yes. So this, again, as a reminder, is before he joined the Rough Rhinos, when he was still officially part of the Yuyan Archers. I don't know if we remember, but he was the Rough Rhinos uh, specialized fire bowman kind of guy. He shot the fire arrows and Greg ragged on him mercilessly yes. for having terrible aim. He's not we great. have a theory about that. We're going to bring that up later. Yes. But I did also find uh, some new lore about the Yuyan Archers Ooh. as of 2022. Oh, brand new. Hot off the presses. Brand new. This is related to the Avatar Legends role-playing game, which you know can be argued if it's canon or not, but they do have set characters in the world that you can play as. And so the lore goes that shortly after the coronation of Fire Lord Sozin, a woman known as Uzuku Yuyan was considered one of the most legendary archers and markswomen ever to have lived. She transformed archery into an art form and received patronage from nobles across the Fire Nation who wanted to learn her techniques. 
Uzuku began to face pressure to share her incredible skills with the Fire Nation, some even wanting her as one of the nation's deadliest agents, while others wanted her to teach new archers her skills. It can be presumed that the Yuyan archers are named for Uzuku Yuyan. That's so cool. I was so excited when I found that. Yeah. Because after, you know, a year and a half, two years of doing this podcast, Mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of the same information and the same content over and over in different bits and pieces. But this, I was like, like a fresh smell or a fresh book. I'm like, wait, what? What is this? Tell me everything. Oh, man. I hope we get some sort of something about like that whole story just in like animated format maybe or mm-hmm. comic book format literally anything give me year one you yawn archers right now i, I want to see it avatar studios please please you know for a second too when i first ran into this little tidbit i was about to censor myself and look away i checked the source expecting it to come from the kiyoshi novels because a lot of the really juicy lore bits are coming from kiyoshi and i have to like actively not read them so i don't spoil myself but when i saw that it was from the avatar legends role-playing game i was like "Ooh, yes Mm. more please what is this Mm -hmm. i guess we'll have to wait and find out if that's official canon or not but for me right now absolutely Mm -hmm. yep so we jump back into the present where zuko and ang are holding their ground against azula Zuko tells Aang to go check on Sokka and Katara and assures the Avatar that he can handle his sister. Eventually, Azula does get the better of her brother and is able to get the letter back. But before she can leave, Zuko grabs her by the ankle and throws her to the ground. He then picks her up and yells at her, demanding to know why their relationship always has to be so violent and toxic. Azula is not in her right mind and screams about how Ursa is behind everything bad that has happened to the princess. She suddenly stops and her face softens as Azula realizes that Zuko had the letter all night and did not destroy it. Zuko isn't really sure what to make of his sister's rambling, so he puts out the fires that the two created during their fight and reiterates that they need to find their mother. Azula wonders if Zuko is actually on her side since leaving the note intact means that she has proof that he is not the rightful heir to the Fire Lord throne. But Zuko tells her that they need to rejoin the group. So you have like this little bit of a like, uh, wait a minute, maybe you're not against me. And she's able to like bring herself out of her craze, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And apparently that is one of Yang's favorite illustrations. Yeah. In this comic, that shift from being or going through a lunatic rant and then suddenly switching to this blank revelatory stare. Yang says about this, you can almost hear the clicking gears of nuttiness in Azula's head. (laughs) And you really can. You can. Absolutely. It was very anime-esque as well, the timing of it, Mm -hmm. which I really appreciated. Which We all know, I think we all have a theory on if Avatar The Last Airbender is an anime or not. I think everyone has a, like, it's like that dress. Is it blue and gold or white and whatever? Like, Mm -hmm. Like that. Yeah. Is Avatar an anime or is it not? And I think the comics kind of reinforce the fact that if it's not, it's definitely heavily influenced it from the timing of some of the jokes and some of the more dramatic moments as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once the royal siblings... So I have to say royal siblings because I'm so used to saying siblings, meaning Katara and Sokka for the past year True. and some change. <laughs> Two years. Yep. Uh, so I will be saying royal siblings and we all know what that means. Once the royal siblings arrive back at the campsite, Aang is angry (laughs) that their fight set fire to nearly half of the landscape. Katara chimes in and tells Zuko that even with the Avatar's help, it took them far too long to put out all the fires. 
Sokka points out that nature hates Azula, which he's going to do several times after this. Oh, my God. Fun fact about that. Mm -hmm. That was actually from real life. What? Apparently, nature hates you are the same words that Yang's friends said to them when they were in college. (laughs) Apparently, the situation was Yang requested a plastic bag from a cashier for one single onion and their friends got onto them about it. Oh, geez. That's fun. (laughs) (laughs) A plastic bag? Nature hates you. (laughs) And you hate nature, it seems. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah, I I like those little things where the writer writes in their own little jokes. And Mm -hmm. we now get it. But I guarantee you when that came out, it's them and friends that were part of the joke. And that's it, right? And it fits so well with Sokka, too. It does. It absolutely does. And the illustration on Sokka's face is perfect for that line delivery. (laughs) Zuko tells Aang that they have come to an understanding and that there will be no more fighting. Skeptical Sokka. Remember Skeptical Sokka? Well, he's back Mm -hmm. because he's pointing out that this has been said several times before and it's only a matter of time before Azula turns on them again. Eventually, the gang gets on Appa and flies the rest of the way to Hira. Mm. In another flashback, we see Ozai, Ursa, and their children sitting around the royal dinner table. Azula brags about how she knows more about firebending than her stupid old dumb instructor, Cunio. <laughs> Cunio. <laughs> oh, I love that he's back. Ozai takes his daughter's word to heart and sends him to the colonies where he will form a firebending academy, which will get taken over by Toph to become a metal bending academy. Stop everything. <laughs> love this. Cunio is in Yu Dao because mm-hmm. Prince Ozai banished him. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Hilarious. Hilarious. I forgot what his name was. And I was like, Cunio, Cunio. And I was thinking Master Yu for some reason. Oh, yeah. And then I like, it just clicked. Like after I was like, no, it's not Master Yu. I was like, oh, no. It's the equivalent. It's the firebending equivalent <laughs> of Master Yu. I love it. You know, that could explain a lot about his personality. And his, yeah. um, he's kind of like a barnacle. He's just very gruff and yeah. rough around the edges and angry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. I love how they used this little bit. They didn't have to mention it was Cunha, Mm -hmm. but they did. And again, we've said this several times when talking about Avatar content. It's just that like, it's like having a Sunday without the sprinkles. It's like when you get the sprinkles, you're like, oh, that's what I've been missing. You didn't have to have the sprinkles, but you did. And it's appreciated. I love that analogy. And that's the kind of writing that I personally love the most. The little interwoven story details. Mm -hmm. And they don't overwhelm the story. So like if you blink Mm -hmm. and you miss it, it's fine. You can move on. Like you don't miss anything. But if you catch it, you get the world. Yep. So Cunio is off to the colonies right after this dinner, right? Zuko does try to defend Cunio's honor and his firebending teaching style. Uh, But Ozai becomes infuriated and scolds his son for his own inexperience and the art of firebending. We learn in this flashback that Zuko could not really firebend until much later. Not like I say late in life, but it's not like he was 40, right? Like it was just later than what firebenders typically exhibit. And it was Mm -hmm. so late, in fact, that they were even unsure if he was a bender at all. Mm. Having a non-bender as a firstborn would have been a big embarrassment to Ozai. And we learn here, too, that Ozai would have been more than happy to just send him away because of this embarrassment. Wait, let me see if I can channel some Mark Hamill on this one. <clears throat> Probably not. Probably be terrible. Okay. She was born lucky, Ozai says of Azula. You were lucky to be born. Ursa yells at Ozai, expressing her anger at the Fire Lord. But Ozai simply walks away 
to meet with Fakir. Love it. Okay, this is also like this one scene. We're getting all these little tidbits from the previous comics and now the animated series. Because those were the very words that Zuko said of himself in Siege of the North Part 2. That's in right. In book one. So now we know that's not something he just came up with to describe himself. That was something that was told to him. And he internalized it and then repeated it to Aang in a very low moment for him. I was holding my mouth shut. I can't believe this. Here's some dark humor for you. Okay. What do you think is the bigger scar? What's over his eye or these words? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm going to just chew on that for a minute because I didn't yeah. even make that connection. Jeez. Well, while you chew on it, I just want to take it a step further and say that it's these kinds of little details that make these comics feel like a continuation of the story of the original series because it's incorporating the source material storyline and tying it all together and then giving us more. Mm, I still can't believe he's been carrying those words with his father. I'm still chewing on it. I, I hit like I hit like the fat of the meat for this part, I think now. And I'm uh-huh. just like, oh, man. And then he says it of himself. Oh, man. And this is a difference of how many years? He looks like he's about... Probably a decade. 12? No, it's not a decade. No, he can't be 12 at that point, is he? I don't know. He looks like he's 11, 12 or so. All right. Yeah. Right. yeah I'll, let's 10, say, let's say like four or five years. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. Jeez. It's terrible. Oh, gosh. Here's also a dark thought about it. Mm-hmm. Pre-burn, Zuko, I think, was kind of like a rebound kid. I get the sense that he's a kid who just wants to do good. And he mm-hmm. takes criticism and just kind of lets it bounce off of him a little bit because he still has the love of his mother. He is still a part of a family, is still a royal prince. But then his mom leaves, his father scars him, and then he's banished. That triple whammy. I think was the vehicle was the start of him beginning to really internalize all the stuff that his dad told him in those years leading up to those events. So like when we see those flashbacks of him, for instance, at the Western Air Temple with Iroh, and he's just scowling and angry and saying, if it's the last thing I do, I will find the Avatar and restore my honor. Like, look at Zuko now in the comics and then think about who he turned out to be. Just Talk about powerful storytelling. Man, I'm bowled over. Yeah. Zuko's mother and father are responsible for his externalization and internalization, respectively. Mm. So Mm -hmm. think about it this way. After Ursa, after she leaves, which, you know, we'll learn here the exact events that took place. Whenever something bad would happen, he would get comforted by an external thing. His mother. Yep. Right. He doesn't have that anymore. And after that left... He started internalizing everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, again, we have that yin yang, like kind of opposites going on here. Oh, man. Jeez. This is brutal. This is a lot more brutal than I thought it was going to be. Just like <laughs> on an emotional yep. standpoint. Uh, okay, let's go back into the story. Let's talk about how Vakir is looking rough. as a little pun because of what we learned oh, about Vakir. Oh, wow. Rough rhino. It's <laughs> right. <laughs> as he tells Ozai that he followed Ikum all the way to a forest at the bottom of a valley near Hira. The archer searched for many months, but never found Ikum. A look of fear washes over Vakir's face as he tells the Fire Prince that the forest is unlike anything he has ever seen. Everything from the trees to the animals to the insects, they just try to kill anyone who enters. Vakir barely made it out alive. A commoner could not have survived for long. 
Ozai is not happy with this news and tells the archer that he will return to the Pohai stronghold and tender his resignation to Colonel Shinu. Wah, wah. And that's how he becomes the world's worst archer with the rough <laughs> rhinos. So tell us your theory, Greg. My theory is that, oh, take a step back. Everyone remembers when we first met the rough rhinos, I was like, this guy was kicked out of the Eon Archers because he's terrible, right? He's got no skill. I've changed my theory since then. <laughs> my new theory is that he's actually, he is the best archer. He wasn't talking up his own skills when he said, I can do a blindfold, that he could actually do that. But he was so disgraced and dishonored by <laughs> this moment that he got in his own head and now cannot shoot a fly from one foot away. <laughs> yep. Right. And just let me direct your attention to that very bottom panel where he's standing behind Ozai and he's shouting after him saying, you know, please, your highness. No, have mercy. Yes. That face, that is the face of his disgrace right there. Mm hmm. And he will never shoot straight again. <laughs> and he will get taken out by 12-year-olds. Yep. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, sorry, sorry. 12 to 14-year-olds. Because that yeah. was... Was that book one or was it book two? That was book one. Book one, okay. Wait, yes, book one? I'm pretty sure it was. That was Avatar Day, which is book two. Book two. Okay, so I'll change it. 13 to 15-year-olds. That range. <laughs> yes. Teenagers. Took him out. This is wonderful. War. Anyway, I'm, I could just sit here and just make fun of Vakir <laughs> <him>. all day. <laughs> Not yeah. going to do that, though. Ozai immediately returns to his wife and yells for the servants to leave the room at once. The fire prince yells at Ursa and reminds her that any communication between her and anyone of her old life, especially past infatuations, is considered treason. Ursa immediately knows what he's talking about and yells that she knew all along that he had been intercepting her letters. And right here is why I don't think that Ikem is Zuko's dad. Mm. I think, and this is where Acorn's going to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because she already knows <laughs> the answer. I mean, maybe. I only got a couple pages in. So I think that Ursa was, had a feeling that her letters were not getting to where they needed to go because she probably hadn't heard anything. And that would be unlike mm. Ikum, right? That would be completely un uncharacteristic of him. Mm -hmm. So what she did was she took a letter and said the most egregious thing she could think of that would 100% get a reaction out of Ozai. And that was his firstborn son is not actually his firstborn son. Mm. And sent that off to little Miss Nosy Nose and let it sit. And it mm. came back pretty quickly. That's my theory. That's a good theory. That would actually make the scene between Ursa and the servant less tragic. Yes. Because at the time we were like, oh my God, Ursa's being totally swindled by this servant. She's going to ruin her life. Mm -hmm. And she's being sweet, trusting Ursa going, finally, I have someone who's on my side. If that's not the case, if she was actually intentionally feeding misinformation, then that means that Ursa is more conniving and intelligent and up on things than we thought she was, which I'll get behind. I think, yes, I, I get behind that 100%. But I also think that we commonly treat Ursa as a damsel in distress or as a victim when she's completely capable on her own. And I think that's just a side effect of her not being present in the content that we've covered so far, right? Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, especially with the events that are going to happen a bit, little bit later, she's super sneaky. She does a lot of things and she is very capable. Her grandfather was the avatar. Like, mm -hmm. but we're so used to seeing her just quiet and 
with a hood on and escaping and being sweet yep. and all that, that we don't, we don't remember that side as much. Yep. And we are going to see, like you said, a little bit more of her utility later, mm-hmm. her skills. Her conniving yeah, think, side. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think a lot of her character is silent. Even mm-hmm. in the search part one, we see her silently interacting with the masks on the wall of her bedroom. Yeah. We see her silently checking on her children and silently looking around. For a character, she very much does not have much of a vocal presence. So we don't know what's going on in her head. We don't right. know what her skill set is or her boundaries or her plans because we're just kind of observing her. Yeah. Until now. Until now. Until she says, I knew it. I knew you were intercepting my letters. Yes. So Ozai continues his, I don't know what you call his Ozai speech and tells Ursa that proof of her treason is living within the palace. Of course, referring to Zuko, who he believes to be Aikum's son and not his own. Although Ozai assures his wife that Zuko may remain in the palace, he tells her that her old boyfriend got what he deserved. And basically, she's like, Haha, your boyfriend's dead. How do you like that? Mm-hmm. She didn't like it. She cries because that's her yeah. true love. I personally was distracted by the word boyfriend. I felt like the word lover would be a more, I don't know, mature word to use. But then yeah. I'm like, well, this is a comic for kids, I guess. Also, it's Ozai's way to belittle the relationship. I know. I thought about that too, but it, it still like feels kind of like a weird word for a royal, egotistical character like Ozai to choose, even purposefully. Yeah. But I, I guess that would be the explanation. Yeah, he's uh, just trying to undercut what their relationship was and trying to overstate what his relationship is. Mm -hmm. That might have been your boyfriend, but I'm your husband. I am the, I'm going to be the fire lord. I just wait, I'll figure that out. Don't worry about it. I got a plan. (laughs) Yeah. Right. We get to rejoin the gang after this and just chew on everything that happened because they land outside of Hera and decide to disguise themselves. Unfortunately, Aang's headband disguise worked a bit better when he had hair because you could still (laughs) see the top part of his head, which has more of the arrow. He doesn't even fix it. No one notices, I guess. He could have also said he was an air acolyte. He could have just lied. That's true. That is an option now. Well, I mean, yes, because the air acolytes exist. I was going to say, Aang has no problem lying. We learned that in The Great Divide. Mm -hmm. He will lie to his heart's (laughs) content. He doesn't care. You will never let him write that down, will you? Nope, never. I actually, the further away we get from the episode, the more I like that about him now, that he lied. Uh Uh-huh. It's just like, it gives him more of a trickster vibe, which I like. It makes him more duplicitous, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Katara notes how busy the town is and asks why it's considered such a small town if it's so crowded. They quickly realize that there's a play going on and they join the audience. Zuko notices that the troupe is performing Love Amongst the Dragons and the royal siblings remember when their mother would take them to see this very same play. And this is the one, if I'm not mistaken, was played by the Ember Island players. Was it the same play? Yes. And they butchered it. Yes, that's right. They would always reenact the final scene afterwards. Zuko always being the evil water spirit and Azula taking the role of the dragon emperor. They are shushed by an elderly couple in front of them, nearly sending Azula into a blinding rage. But Zuko is able to calm her down in time to watch the final kiss scene, which we know was supposed to be Aikam and Ursa. But it wasn't because stupid Ozai and stupid Azulon showed up and took this stupid hand in marriage and... Mm-hmm. And ruined her acting career. Ruined it. Yep. 
This part, though, again, is such a nice little detail that calls back to the original series. Because on stage, we see the water spirit dressed in northern style robes and wearing the blue spirit mask that Zuko wears in the original series. And then we find out in his conversation with Azula that he used to play the blue spirit whenever they would reenact this scene as children. So I find it like really ironic that the blue spirit, first of all, the mask is from a water spirit and that that was the mask that he chose. Mm -hmm. But it also makes sense because now we know that that was the character that he always played. So when it came time for him to take a disguise and become something other than Zuko, crown prince of the Fire Nation, he chose the mask that he was most familiar with through playing with it. Zutara shippers are probably losing their mind right now. That's exactly what I thought too. (laughs) You know what? Zutara shippers take this one. Yeah. Wow. That's just as an extra <laughs> layer on top of everything. Oh, geez. All right. Well, the play ends and Zuko asks that same elderly couple if they know of a woman named Ursa. Before they can give a full answer, the man who played the water spirit comes from behind and takes off his mask, introducing himself as Norin. Norin is the director of the Hira acting troupe and tells Zuko that Urso was once a member of this very same troupe. The man invites them to come to his home, where they can discuss Ursa in a more private setting. Zuko and the gang accept his invitation. Interesting. Man dressed as the one... Okay, everyone taking notes of this? Everyone wrote it down? Right, <laughs> spelled N-O-R-E-N... Okay, good. We're good. Okay, moving <laughs> on. Norin has a wonderful home, and the gang gets to meet his wife, Noriko, and their daughter, Kii. Aang learns that the two have been married for almost five years and that they found each other a little bit later in life. Everyone wrote that down, right? Later in life? Right. Norin? And then N-O-R-I-K. Oh, I'm just making sure everyone's taking notes here and paying attention. Because <laughs> I have a theory that I feel like Acorn might know the answer to, but it's fine. Zuko and Azula talk to Kii, who has a doll who is also named Kii, with a very interesting haircut. It turns out that the little girl tried to give her doll a haircut and it didn't really work out for the best. Azula tells the little girl that she used to give her dolls head cuts and offers to show her what that means. Just then, Sokka and Norin walk into the house with food. Norin asks if his daughter is being hospitable to their guests and Kii says that she's trying. I love that. (laughs) I'm trying to be hospitable, but this one just keeps on threatening to cut the head off my doll. Also, this is so cute. And I love that they included this because we, well, this might be a bit of a spoiler, but I know Zuko has an heir by the time we get to Korra. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the point of being a royal. You have to continue the line. Mm -hmm. Well, we know he's going to have a family. And so to see him interacting with a little girl here in this scene, it just warms my heart because I'm like, Zuko is dad material. And that's so cute. Yeah, he was very caring and calm and he's playing with her. It was adorable. I really liked that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I see your doll. She has the same name you do. Yeah. Oh, and then man. Azula's like, want me to give her a head cut? Yeah. And um, <laughs> <laughs> give her a haircut. She'll remember. Call it a head cut. <laughs> yep. Zuko's <laughs> like, Azula, stop it. Terrible. There, there is also this fun little exchange that kind of glossed over with Noriko, Aang, and Katara about how Aang and Katara for this older woman already have that like they're thinking about marriage kind of vibe. 
And Noriko even says, like, I think you're a little bit young to be thinking about that. She goes, oh, but well, what do I know? Like, you know, love is love. It has no age. Do whatever. And that's how she drops that tidbit of Noran and I met a bit later. And they'd only been married five years at this point. Mm -hmm. So that would make... And she's like, yeah. young lovers, like, you are lucky to find each other young. Yeah, exactly. So... Norin and Sokka are dishing out dinner, and Norin admits that he was suspicious when Zuko mentioned Ursa, but after Sokka explained that they are drama historians, his mind was <laughs> put to ease. Noriko is delighted at the attention and admits that it's about time the troop got a little recognition. Sokka is very proud of his fake cover story. After all, he just opened his mouth and there it was. <laughs> Good job, idea guy. Norin tells the gang that Ursa was once a famous member of the Hira acting troupe before she was taken from the village to the Fire Nation capital on quote-unquote official business. The director continues to tell them that the rumor going around town is that she married into the royal family. When Zuko asks about Ikem, Norin is surprised that they even knew this name and tells them of how Ikem fled into the forgetful valley after Ursa was taken. And he also makes this side comment of like, oh, you're well-researched, I see. Mm -hmm. Right, Norin. All right. And Noriko is like, yeah, and supposedly she married into the royal family. Yes. All this happened before I came to town, but even I've heard the rumors. So Ursa leaving definitely caused some waves and made some gossip. It did. Well, I mean, it would in a small town when you're the Avatar's granddaughter. Absolutely. <laughs> Noriko tells them of another rumor. The word on the street is that Ursa came back years later and went into the forgetful valley to look for her lost lover. Noriko worries that if this is true, both of those individuals may not have ended up okay, as the forgetful valley is not exactly the easiest place to live. Norum immediately dismisses this rumor as false, almost as if he were personally offended by it. What are you doing? You're speculating so hard right now. Are you ready for my theory? My new theory? Okay, let's hear it. Norin is Ikem. Norin is yeah, Ikem. I think so? That's my theory. That's my theory. Absolutely my theory. Okay. But we have one more flashback to go over before I reveal exactly all the reasons why. But if anyone hears my brain spinning, you hear like the gerbil, the hamster on the wheel <laughs> up there. That's why. After leaving, Norin and Noriko's home. Aang apologizes to Zuko for losing his temper that morning. Aang believes they should not try to find Ikem and that it might be better if he just stays lost to history. Aang also believes they should burn the letter, but Zuko tells his friend that the letter has already been returned to Azula. Aang is not happy to hear this news, but Zuko kind of shrugs it off and tells him that they need to focus on the task at hand, finding his mother. They will figure out everything else later, which includes where and who Zuko is supposed to be. Aang reminds Zuko that when people bow to him, they aren't bowing to him, per se. They are bowing to what he represents. And that is a new era of love and peace. I am a little confused by Zuko giving the letter back to Azula, being like, it's okay. It's fine. No big deal. We'll figure it out later. This seems pretty dangerous to me. Yes. I think it was a Band-Aid solution to keeping Azula in check. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe this, this seems too smart for the family dum-dum. <laughs> <laughs> we say that with love. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I, in all seriousness, this does seem like more of like an Iroh maneuver than a Zuko maneuver. Mm -hmm. But like if this thing calmed her down 
And the fact that he didn't destroy it helped bring her back to some sort of reasonable state and just give it back to her, right? Mm-hmm. Why not? There's there's another thing that I didn't talk about, but mm-hmm. in that previous scene where Azula confronts Zuko, Zuko throws her down to the ground. She like has her little switch flip moment where she goes from crazy to calm. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to walk away saying that we need to work together. No more fighting until we came, you know, finish here what we came to do, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, oh, Zuzu, are you actually on my side? Yeah. And then there's that panel where he like looks quickly at her out of the corner of his eye. Mm-hmm. And then he says, let's go join the rest of the group. I read that a couple times trying to figure out what she meant by that and what his look meant. Mm. And I almost wonder if she's under the impression that for some reason Zuko is on her side and wants to also destroy their mother the way she does. Oh, interesting. And I wonder if that look of his was him realizing that and deciding, okay, I'm just going to keep going along with this and make her think that I am on her side and I want to Ooh, complete this mission. I like that. Just to keep her appeased. Yeah, I but really I'm not like sure. That. It's pretty vague. There's also, I like that. That is my headcanon because it's like really dark and messed up of Zugo to be like, yes, let's just keep my sister on this leash <laughs> that I have that she thinks we're going to kill our mother together. Right. But I also think maybe a less dark and a little more, I don't know, like said in context thing is that Zugo doesn't want to be a fire lord. And this mm-hmm. letter, he doesn't care who knows it because he doesn't want this responsibility anymore. He's like too much for him. He was relieved when he learned that he might not be the fire lord, the rightful heir. Yeah. It's almost like he's leaving it up to fate now. Yeah. Which is really crazy to think about. It is really crazy. And I mean, there's lots of layers to that, too, because, you know, that I forget where this comes from, but there's some sort of quote about the best leader is the one who doesn't want to lead. Yeah, because they're the ones who won't get corrupted by power as easily. That's pretty much Zuko. He's like, I'm Fire Lord because I kind of have to be. And I did want to originally, but now I'm not so sure. Yeah, (laughs) because being Fire Lord's hard and there's a lot of stuff involved that I wasn't really expecting. There's colonies that don't want to be separated. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, Sokka interrupts this conversation to point out that Katara and Azula are probably just going to end up killing each other if they don't hurry up on this quest. (laughs) Zuko tells, and I love this panel too, because in the background, you just see them being like, I'm going to freeze you. I'm going to, she's like, I'm going to burn you. It's just like this fight Mm -hmm. about to, like this two forces about to explode. Yep. Zuko tells the group that there is one place left they need to visit, Forgetful Valley. Mm. And yet another flashback. Zuko and Azula. I love these. I I love they have this nice like sepia kind of tone to them, which is Uh really cool. Like almost like old parchment. Oh, it's so good. Anyways, in another flashback, Zuko and Azula are arguing on Zuko's bed. Ursa overhears them and pulls Azula aside, demanding an explanation. Again, a little favoritism going on here, but maybe it's not genetics. Maybe it's just that Azula is hard to get along with, even as a child. Anyways, Azula explains mm-hmm. that she accidentally overheard Azulon scolding Ozai in the throne room when her father asked for Iroh's birthright so soon following Luten's death. As punishment, Azulon ordered Ozai to feel the pain of losing his firstborn by killing Zuko. We all re- remember that scene. I love this too because <laughs> Azula's like, I accidentally overheard this thing. <laughs> and Ursa's like, cut the crap. Accidentally? Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, she knew. 
<laughs> Ursa then tells Azula to go back to bed and walks down the hall in search of her husband. Azula has a smirk on her face, almost as if this were planned. She has this like evil children of the corn smile. Oh my God. She's so conniving. Yes. Also, at this point in the comic, I was losing my mind because we are about to see what actually happened that Mm -hmm. night. Because if we remember, Ursa walked in to a conversation that we heard in the animated series where young Zuko and young Azula were hanging out and she comes in and she's like, dad's going to kill you. Yeah. And they have that back and forth. And then Ursa comes in going, what is going on here? Well, we're about to see what happens from there. And after, I don't know, so many years of watching the same animated series over and over again, I'm like Mm -hmm. new content, new something. (laughs) We're going to see something new. Okay. Yes. I have to tell everyone what the thing is new now. So hold on. Give me a minute. Okay. Ursa finds Ozai and tells him that he cannot kill Zuko. The Fire Prince tells her that he will not refuse the Fire Lord's command because that would be treason. He then admits that since he is a merciful man, he is willing to wait for Zuko to fall asleep. That is before killing him, just in case anyone <laughs> had so any doubt. He doesn't doubts. feel a thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Thanks. Good guy Ozai over here. Just looking <laughs> out for his son. Ursa offers Ozai a deal instead, one that will leave him on the throne and Zuko will still be alive. She tells Fire Prince Ozai that she knows how to make a poison that is both colorless and odorless, making it completely untraceable. Victims of this poison pass quietly as if they had simply fallen asleep. Ursa will give him a vial of this poison in exchange for Zuko's life. The Fire Prince accepts this offer under one condition. The condition is that once the vial is in his custody, Ursa leaves to never return. I feel like it was like Scar in The Lion King. Go away and never return. Yeah, that. Yes. He offers this condition because he's not an idiot and he's also a little paranoid. And he believes that it's only a matter of time before his dear wife uses the poison on him. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, it's been how many years and she hasn't offed you yet, Ozai? It's almost like you call attention to the thing that you didn't know about. And now that you know about it, it's like, well, that ruins everything. Now you got to go away. I also think that he is kind of right in his paranoia because he only just recently really had Ikem killed off as far as she's concerned. Right. Mm -hmm. So now he knows he's on thin ice with her. So, yeah, that's true. This changes the dynamic. it It absolutely does. Ursa accepts this condition, but she offers another condition. And that is that she gets to take the children with her. But Ozai refuses the offer. The children, after all, are his collateral. He even says that. They're my collateral. Good guy, Ozai. Father of the year here. (laughs) Uh As long as she keeps to her word, the children will be left unharmed. Ursa has no choice. She makes the poison with a flower that are we taking notes here, has been sitting on a table in her room this entire time. Yikes. She's had the ability to make this poison at any moment. Wild. I love that. Mm -hmm. What a detail. Also, evidence that Ursa had a lot going on in her brain that we didn't know about. That's right. And they mentioned this very briefly in part one, but her parents were botanists. Mm -hmm. It's completely reasonable to think. Herbalists, sorry. Herbalists. So it's completely reasonable to think that they knew of this. Uh You work with a flower 
or something, an herb for long enough, you're going to be like, all right, maybe we don't use this one because it makes the best poison known to this world. (laughs) Maybe we don't put that in our tea. Yeah, that's, oh man, let's not let Iroh anywhere near that flower. Anyways, the rest is history. She hands him the vial she takes off and we get to see the other side of this scene where she says goodbye. She kisses Azula in her sleep. So she has that perceived that she never got a goodbye from her mother. And then she says goodbye to Zuko, telling him to never forget who he is. With the same dialogue from the show. Mm -hmm. Oh Mm -hmm. my gosh. Two points here. Yes. In that initial conversation between Ursa and Ozai, when they're going back and forth with conditions and collateral and all this stuff, there was a note from Gurihiru, which is the artist of the comic, saying that because this was a tense discussion that didn't have any violence, they purposefully made the panels really dynamic and dramatic. Mm. For instance, one of the pages is completely made up of four panels that go diagonally across from the top to the bottom of the page. And in those panels, we see parts of their faces, them facing each other, dialogue bubbles all over the place. And the way that that is laid up, it reminds me of like the quick cuts during a very dramatic scene in a movie where you're cutting back and forth between faces and like different angles and like the lighting coming through the window. Yeah, They did such a great job making this feel like a do or die kind of conversation. Like this Mm -hmm. is it. This is going to determine the rest of the character's futures. The other thing that I read that I thought was so interesting is a a quote from Yang and Michael, how they discussed a lot about how complicit was Ursa in Azulon's death, because it was very vague originally Mm. in the original series. And so now that they're actually showing what happened that night, they were like, okay, how far do we go? Yeah. They came to the conclusion that the testimony Ozai gave Zuko in The Day of the Black Sun Part 2, The Eclipse, was true. Ursa did, in fact, partake in treasonous actions. However, they also revealed in the comic that Ozai left out one piece of the truth, the fact that he was the person who delivered the poison. Yeah. She only made it. He did the killing. When in that original scene, it sounded like Ursa went and offed the Fire Lord and then ran away. Yeah. And I think we talked about that, too, a little bit when we got uh to that episode. We were like, did she kill? Oh, no. She did not. Is that in her character? I don't know. She was not. She was only an accessory to the murder. Exactly. Yeah. So I really appreciate this. And I mean, again, this goes back to what we've been talking about this whole time about how with Mike and Brian involved in the comic creation process, they're able to inject this sense of continuation of the story. They're able to keep very true to the character's motivations and personalities. And I love the fact that Yang just seems like a a really great writing partner where they just supported all of this great content that existed and then incorporated all the great ideas that Michael had on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's I know you said this earlier, but I'm just going to reiterate it. It's nice to get the new content. It's nice to get the answers. It just feels good. It does. And I, I can see why a lot of people who have wrote into us or have hung out with us when we're on Avatar or, you know, even live on my Twitch streams, a lot of people say that they want this to be animated format. And I can see why. Mm. Specifically mm-hmm. the search. Like it's So many answers, so much great Avatar lore that I feel like is hidden from a lot of the fan base because it's not in the animated format, which is a shame. Yeah, I was one of them. Yeah, me too. Back in the day, I read maybe the first book of The Promise and then stopped for whatever reason. I forget why. And I'm so glad I'm reading through them now. Yeah. Well, The the Promise, as great as it was, 
in hindsight, being halfway through the search, feels a little, I don't know, fillery, kind of? Comparatively, yeah, a little bit. But it actually felt fillery for the first like book and a half. Yeah. But then my You're mind right. was yeah. blown in book three where I'm like, wait a second, did they just set up the entirety of Korra? Are you kidding me? Yes. Stop yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm like crying on my couch where I'm like, oh my God, it's like the basis of the acolytes and blah, 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 and all the things. So cool. But to someone who is an Avatar fan, much like this might have been your mindset, might not be, I might be completely off base, mm-hmm. but I would imagine you're unsure of the comic. You're like, all right, it's more content. I want to read more Avatar. And then you get a book and a half through and you're like, eh. And then like the yeah. next page is like the mind blown Cora thing. And then you just, you just never make it that far. Exactly. Which yeah. is a shame. But man, if I ever meet another Avatar fan on the street and they have not read this book specifically, <laughs> I will say, yeah, you can read The Promise later, but read this one now. This is mm-hmm. answering so many questions for you at the moment that I know are in there rattling around. Uh, and if anyone listening to this right now was in the same boat and this is your first time going through the comic, we are so happy that you're joining us yes. because we're hoping this is blowing your mind just as much. What a great ride. This was one of the few comic episodes that I've had to summarize that went so fast. The comics take mm-hmm. a lot longer to summarize because it's just a bit of a different mindset, a bit of a different process. But this one, I read this one three times and my brain is just like, like I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to read it again after this before we go <laughs> into part three. It's yep. just so good. Okay, anyway, sorry. Let's rejoin Team Avatar as they arrive in the Forgetful Valley, which is conveniently marked by a sign at the entrance, by the way. Which kind of looks like the Kodama from Princess Mononoke. Oh, yeah, they the do. little <laughs> guys with the bobbly heads. Yeah. Yeah. When the group cannot find an immediate path in, Azula burns a path for herself through, angering the rest of the group. Aang is quickly distracted, however, when his face begins to make another one of those weird spirit faces, is what I'm going to call him. I'm going to call it a spirit face. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the, the wolf face in the previous issue. Sokka notices that there are actually faces all around them in the valley and is able to match the exact face that Aang is making to a flutter bat overhead. Aang quickly chases the animal to a nearby pool. The gang is not far behind the avatar and Katara notices as they approach the pool how she's never seen water so still and clear. Zuko agrees and notes that it looks like a perfect pane of glass. Aang notes how this pool of water reminds him of Twi and La's pool in the Northern Water Tribe and asks the group to be respectful as this is a very spiritual place. Azula sees her mother in the pool, because of course she does, and is immediately enraged and zaps the pool with lightning because of course she does. (laughs) Aang yells at the princess and after she sends a blast at Aang and Zuko, Katara gets fed up and with her actions tries to stop the princess. She starts to like water bend a little bit. But she's interrupted because ninja star flowers come out of nowhere, (laughs) sharp as razors, and get embedded into nearby trees. After a bit of, I don't know, defensive maneuvers, I guess you would call that. Yeah. Katara theorizes that the flowers have been frozen and kind of recognizes because there are vines moving on their own remembers this from the swamp and realizes that there's a waterbender attacking them somewhere in the forest. Another waterbender seen in the wild. (laughs) Just using vines because apparently if you don't live in either of the poles, you just plant bend as a (laughs) waterbender. So to counter these attacks, 
Katara is able to kind of outwaterbend the waterbender and neutralize the vines and calls out that whoever they are out there, they're not the only waterbenders in town anymore. This town ain't big enough for the two of us is kind of her <laughs> vibe, I guess. It's a big power move. It is. It absolutely is. An elderly northern water tribe woman and a man wearing a mask reveal themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but my brain went rut row. Because the last time we met an elderly water bending woman did not end super well. Yeah. Yeah. That was Hama and that was not a good time. Mm-mm. Also, Hugh, when he was the swamp thing, also had like a, a wooden mask that was very similar to that. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think about that. So we, we got some like uneasy vibes here. Old lady who's a waterbender and masked man who looks kind of otherworldly the way the swamp thing did. Those eyes on that mask are like dead. They're just like pitch black, void, empty circles. And his hunched Ooh. posture. Mm-mm. Yeah. Creepy. Mm-hmm. If you were tired of flashbacks, I'm sorry to say we have more right here. <laughs> After Ursa left the palace, she actually goes back to her childhood home, the actual house that she lived in, in Hira. Mm-hmm. When a young girl answers the door, Ursa learns that her parents had passed away years ago. (sighs) Yeah. Ursa is saddened by this news, obviously, and sits on the stage where she and Ikem once shared a kiss. Norin, of all people, finds her crying on the stage and, after some small talk, realizes that she is Ursa. Instead of letting her continue to cry alone, he invites her into his home for some breakfast. And here is my final piece of the Greg is convinced that Norrin and Ikem are the same person. <laughs> Ursa was crying on the stage with her head down mm-hmm. on her knees. She looks up and Norrin immediately has a look of shock and recognition on his face and says, Ursa. He looks shell-shocked. Like he's seen a ghost. It's such a great expression. Yeah, it is perfectly illustrated. I could not be convinced that they're not the same person at this point. <laughs> but but Greg, why doesn't she recognize him? Well, enough years have passed where maybe he's gotten older and the years weren't so kind. Or maybe we go back to the Forgetful Valley where we learn that the older water tribe woman's name is Misu. And she apologizes for attacking the group. She mentions how there are three pools identical to this one that also must remain undisturbed. Misu tells the group of their backstory. Back at the Northern Water Tribe, she was a very quiet and studious young woman. And her brother, whose name is Rafa, was the exact opposite. We kind of have like a Katara and Sokka vibe kind of here. That was intentional. Yep. He was loud and brash and would steal from the tribe leaders and other influential people just because he could. He did return what he stole. So like he wouldn't get in like super trouble, but people weren't super happy with him regardless. (laughs) he, He wasn't like a good townsfolk. Let's just say that. She specifically said that he stole from people who were important enough that wouldn't admit to being stolen from. Because it was embarrassing. So he got away with a lot of crap. Yeah. Well, one day his luck ran out and Misu found Rafa alone on the ice with his face horribly disfigured. Misu took her brother to the most experienced healers in the village, but none could help him. Eventually, she went to a library and began to study learning from an ancient Fire Nation scroll about a powerful spirit who can give faces to anyone. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That sounds familiar. Hmm. I wonder why. Hmm. Well, ever since then, 
she has searched without success for this spirit. Their searching brought them to the Forgetful Valley, in case anyone was wondering. Mm -hmm. Sokka notes how Rafa hasn't eaten anything when they were all having a meal. And Misu tells him that Rafa's been caught between life and death since his injury. He doesn't eat or do much of anything anymore. I want to bring up something really quickly before going to the spirit side of this whole scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How awesome is it that Misu, who is a Northern Water Tribe woman, waterbender, who is at this time, before she left the village, relegated to only being a healer, she taught herself waterbending and the whole, oh, what would you call it? The whole principle that there's water in everything. Oh my God. Without having to be <laughs> jailed <laughs> by herself. So cool. I get chills. Yes. Because what that tells me is she's potentially as strong as Katara. Mm -hmm. She was able to just pick things up. She's now being as resourceful as mm -hmm. Katara learned how to be from someone teaching her, being able to use the world around you in plants and stuff. Also, fun fact, Mizu is a word in Japanese that means water. Oh. So, Misu, Mizu. I was thinking like miso soup. That's right. <laughs> miso. Yeah. Miso. I know it's different, but that's, a, I don't know. I just always thought of that. Uh -huh. Yeah. She's just like, immediately when I made that connection, I was like, she's so impressive. She's one of my, she's probably my second or third most favorite character from the books. New right character. Now. I mm -hmm. agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. The thing I said before that I said was intentional. Yang's frame of reference for these two new characters, Rafa and Misu, is the relationship between Katara and Sokka. And Yang said, the difference is only more years and more tragedy. Yeah. This whole part two is very much about brothers and sisters or siblings in general, let's say. It's a very clear theme. Yeah, absolutely. So the spiritual side of things, we got faces that get disfigured. We got faces that could be restored. What spirit mm -hmm. do we know that has to do with faces here? Co. I think, granted, I haven't read part three yet. So, you know, let me finish part three before anyone starts coming at me with like, oh, is this true or false? I think that Rafa wasn't disfigured. I think his face was wiped off by Co, was stolen by Co. Yeah, because for anyone who hasn't been able to get their hands on the comics, we do not see his face. Right. She says it's disfigured. His face is facing away from us. And mm -hmm. then the next panel, we see it completely wrapped in bandages. So we don't know what it looks like. Yeah. And there are gaps in the bandage and there are no, no eyes, no facial markings. But that is also common in comic books because it's very far away. In order to kind of expedite the right. process, it's, it is acceptable to like leave out eyes or mouths or noses or eyebrows or, eyebrows or anything. Just like it's an extra detail. You don't need it. You, you see the picture, you move on, right? So you can look at it and say, he has no face. I don't see an eyebrow. Or you could be like, yeah, of course he doesn't have an eyebrow. This is a comic book. They're not going to, you know, they got to move this show along, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, just little things. I think Co is responsible for removing this gentleman's face. Mm. And we've also learned that Co can be a wrathful or vengeful spirit. So mm -hmm. would fall in line with uh, Rafa's shenanigans. Ooh, if Rafa stole something from Co. That's exactly how Ko would respond. Mm -hmm. Stole something from me? Well, I'm going to steal your face. Yes. Yes. Well, all you have to do is show emotion in front mm -hmm. of Ko to get your face stolen. And we learned Rafa was very Sokka-esque, full of life, full of emotion, very brash, right? Where Misu might have stood maybe a better chance. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Azula ends up interrupting their backstory, essentially, and asks if they know of Ursa's whereabouts. But Mizu tells her everything was quiet until they arrived. 
Aang asks about the healing spirit and wonders what it's supposed to look like. And we learn here that the spirit is actually a she and they don't know what she looks like. However, she does approach when the forest displays face-like patterns, which we saw now twice in the search part one and two. Mm-hmm. I love that detail. I love it too. It's a very like pay attention to your surroundings, like kind of mystical. Like mm-hmm. if you're, I don't know, face is buried in your phone, you're not going to see the giant wolf spirit. Yeah. It's a Studio Ghibli kind of detail. Yeah, absolutely. Then a giant wolf will appear. So after all the faces, we get giant wolves. Everyone take a notice, remember? Step one, face. Aang makes the face. <laughs> Step two, giant wolf. And the wolf bears the marks of a face. And this wolf will drink from one of the forest's pools. Whichever pool he drinks from, the spirit will appear. The problem is that Mizu and Rafa are always at the wrong pool. Mizu sighs in disappointment as she realizes that they are, yet again, at the incorrect pool. She comforts her brother and assures him that they will keep trying. Here's my, this might just be me nitpicking a bit too much on this. I think this is the only negative thing I will say about part two. If they just stayed at the same pool, eventually the wolf will just show up there. Probability. Mm, mm -hmm. They have a one in four chance. They have a 25% chance. Yep. And unless the wolf favors particular pools over the others, even if it favors particular pools, but it eventually gets through all of them. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. If you keep on changing the pool that you go to look for the wolf, the wolf is just going to, like, you know, I can't. Statistically, you're reducing your chances. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if Mizu and Rafa are just not that smart or. She taught herself water bending. She did not teach herself statistics. Uh, Well, I I should rephrase that. She's not book smart. She's street smart, right? She's got that, like, she's a common sense. She's not exactly like a statistical math person. She did spend a lot of time studying, but we don't know what she studied. Poetry is what I'm going to (laughs) say. Probably. Reading, history, anything other than science. Yeah. If she was anything like me, it would be history, language. Yeah. Yeah. Poetry, arts. Not so much the math and science side. Yeah. It was just the one nitpicky thing that just really jabs me. It's just like, you could have just stayed at one pool. It would have been easier for you. It would have been easier for your brother. And you would have probably been out of here by now. But I guess it's a good mm-hmm. thing that they're not because then they wouldn't be able to be here to explain about the spirit to Aang. Yep. So hearing the story, Aang decides that he's going to cross over into the spirit world in an attempt to contact the wolf spirit and make him come to their pool. I'm going to say, quote unquote, their pool, the pool that they're at. Azula scoffs and decides to go off on her own, annoyed that they are stopping to help those who are irrelevant to their quest. Again, I kind of understand that. Azula seems like one of those kind of people who are in a video game main quest only people and they don't do any (laughs) side quests oh yeah but i kind of understand it too because she's like we're on this thing we're doing this thing why are we stopping to help joe schmo and jane schmo like what are we doing here and zuko's like tries to explain to her right that like he's the avatar this is a job he has to stop and help people and we as his companions as his friends help him Mm -hmm. and that makes the world a better place and azula just doesn't want to listen to that she's like no mom's trying to kill me you're in on it. He's in on it. That tree's on it. I'm pretty sure that flutter bat is on it. We got to go. We have no time for this. So Azula has yet another episode and convinces herself that Rafa and Misu were sent by Ursa to slow her down. Just as she shoots a blinding ray of lightning at Mizu, 
Aang enters the spirit world and Zuko jumps in front of it. It kind of looks like he jumps in front of it. I couldn't really tell, but I th- I'm going to say I think he jumps in front of it. It looks like it, yeah. In spirit form, Aang meets the Flutterbat again, who tells the Avatar to come with him. The two land from their flight next to the wolf spirit, who Aang tries to convince to drink at the pool of water near Rafa Mizu. The wolf looks at Aang for a moment and then begins to run away. But the Avatar grabs onto the wolf before he can get away. The wolf seems to be moving so fast that Aang kind of has to close his eyes. It's a shield from, I want to say like the wind, but we know there's no air in the spirit world. So I don't know why he was closing eyes, but he closes his eyes G-forces. when he reopens them. Something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, he was, maybe he was getting some like spirit wolf fur in his eyes or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. But when he reopens his eyes, he hears a woman's voice questioning Aang's decision to ride her spirit wolf as if it were a quote-unquote beast of burden. Aang introduces himself as the Avatar and asks for the spirit's name, to which she responds, I am the mother of faces. The end. And we get maybe the most impressive full-page presentation of this she new so spirit. Cool. Oh my god! She looks like a Dark Souls boss. She <laughs> or a boss. Absolutely. Or Elden Ring, if you're a little more Or Elden day. Ring. Yeah. Or Elden Ring. She looks literally right out of a FromSoft game. Uh-huh. Twisted in a beautiful, but in a twisted way. She's She has several heads, several faces on top of her shoulders. Mm-hmm. And she's got spirit faces floating around her as well. She's like very nature looking. She looks like she's made out of branches and vines. Yep. Big final boss energy. Yes. Yes. And this was the first time in how many episodes of the comic have we done where I, without needing to look at any external sources, said, this is the last page of this book. (laughs) I did not. I was so excited that I was just like, let's flip the page and keep reading. I thought about it. I was like, mm. I, like I hit the next page button on my iPad, but I was like, uh, no, we can't. We got this is it. I know this. Is it. Yep. So a couple things here. Yeah. Before I got to that final page, actually, I was thinking about something that you said in our last episode about how you wanted Ecom to become this like spirit wolf guy. Yeah. And so I was thinking before the reveal, ooh, what if this is Ecom? And he's like become some sort of like spirit creature and the wolf is now his like familiar. So didn't have to wait long for that to be crushed. But it was a cool thought while it lasted for about two panels. Yeah. As much as I would like Ecom to like be twisted into a spirit, I am again, I've changed my ways in that thinking because I Mm -hmm. thought at first that maybe he was the wolf spirit or he like became one with the wolf spirit or something. Right. Yeah. But I've I've since changed that train of thought, and he is one hundred and ten percent the new director of the acting troupe, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned right now. Even if they say no, they have him next to each other, and I'll just say no. That's a that's a shape shifting spirit. <laughs> yeah. Well, if he is, we still don't know how he survived the forgetful valley and right. what its lasting effects were. Mm. So I'm very interested to find that out. A couple details about the mother of faces, though. She was originally conceived with a design of a Korean queen, but Gudehiru's trial sketches were enough to make Yang realize that this approach would not work. So they actually kind of shifted gears. And with Michael's help, Michael Dante DiMartino, they made the design more in a direction of like an East Asian deity, specifically mm. uh, Guan Yin, who is a deity of mercy and compassion. 
The team hoped that the mother faces would feel primal, ancient, and mysterious. And so they also, for this purpose, included some references of multi-headed Hindu goddesses for reference. So, I mean, I love hearing the explanation behind the design because this is 100% what I feel. Mm -hmm. While this does have a lot of Asian deity influence, I also kind of got some Hindu vibes off of it because of multiple limbs, in this case, heads. And then finally... Some of the central aspects of the mother faces were influenced by the production of the legend of Korra, which we now know was happening around the same period, the same time. Mm, she just looks so cool. I'm sorry. I'm looking at her again. She looks so cool. I know. I have it up on my iPad. I'm like, I can't stop Love staring her. at it. I know. But yeah, her design is incredible. I'm a huge fan and I can't wait to learn more about her. I know. Oh, man. She looks... I mean, I know one big fact about her that they haven't said in the comic yet, but that's just from research from our secret podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Secret podcast. I use the Forgetful Valley in one of our more recent secret podcast character backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And even at that time, I was reading about it and I'm like, I was like censoring how much I was reading on the page, making sure I didn't spoil anything. But I was like, what a cool concept. Yeah. Spirit forest. And we now know after seeing Aang fly on the bat that the stone that we saw at the entrance of the valley with the holes on it that kind of looked like a Okadama, that is kind of like a map of the different lakes. It's the same orientation. I did think that too. I noticed that. Yeah. And I also like how they showed that stone, that like sign or whatever in the search part one, but didn't bring any attention. They just just showed Mm -hmm. it to you. And it's like, you'll learn about this the next one. Don't worry about that. You'll know that he's going to the forgetful forest now. So cool. It's so absolutely amazing. All right. Before I lose my mind again over (laughs) the mother of faces, I got to know who is your MVP of the episode? I think I have to go with Ursa. Yeah? Yeah. Partly because I want to give her some love. Mm -hmm. Mostly because I'm just so appreciative and impressed with all the information that we got about her backstory, her smarts, her tenacity, her resilience. I mean, when you think about it, this woman has lost so much and not only left her whole life and family and friends and love behind, but then suffered (laughs) as Ozai's wife, who we now know was just as sadistic and mean-spirited as we saw him to be in the original series. But not only does she go through all of that with grace and poise and dignity, she also did what she needed to do to protect her kids and to get out. Like she basically left her life behind a second time. Yeah. And we still don't know what happened to her. We're still looking for her. But just the fact that she was able to get through all of that I mean, unless we find her in a cave, you know, like a wild woman who's like lost hope for everything. (laughs) Unless that happens. I imagine she was able to rebound again and just, I don't know. She's so strong. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you chose her because I am, I had a three-way tie, but now I'm on a two-way tie. Oh, okay. So I'm going to, I'll take Ursa out of it. And everyone knows I love my secondary characters Mm -hmm. a lot. So Mizu... I think is just so impressive as a character. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that she is an alternate take on Katara as well. And she just like is so resourceful and she knows enough about waterbending to use it in a way that she had never considered before and maybe had seen it in practice. And then new ways like using the water in the vines and freezing mm-hmm. petals. Very impressive. Just trying to help her brother out, which is just very like 
admirable Dedication. in my opinion. Like, yeah. And she, for all intents and purposes, I know her brother is right there, but he's not said a word. He doesn't speak. He doesn't do anything. She's basically alone. Yeah. Like, and she's not crazy. Yeah. She hasn't gone out of her mind because she has a purpose and she's focused all of her energy on that purpose to keep her and her brother alive or at least her brother as much as she can. The mm-hmm. other one will be no surprise to anyone is Fakir because he's just, <laughs> <laughs> he's just so tragic. <laughs> especially knowing, especially knowing now that he's, he was this top of the top Yuan Archer. Yep. And he got reduced to missing every shot in that episode on Avatar Day. Yep. It's just great. <laughs> I just absolutely love it. You know, between the two, I think Vakir deserves the honorable mention MVP. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> he didn't really move the story along at all that much, but man, did he leave an impression on me at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he really just kind of missed the mark on getting the MVP, but it's fine. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Take a sip of my drink as we move on. Missed. <laughs> oh geez okay moral of the episode this one's tough because there's a lot that happens in this book. lots of themes lots of back and forth with the time periods yeah, yeah. so much happens mm. this might be kind of a weird one but i feel like after the conversation that we just had about ursa and misu i feel like one of the themes and one of the morals of this issue is there is strength in silence yeah you don't have to always be external about what you're going through. Sometimes you need to keep it kind of close to the chest and just Mm. keep yourself going however you can. Mm -hmm. Sometimes all you can is rely on yourself as we've seen in both cases. Ursa only had her. She couldn't rely on anyone else because the one person that she thought she could was selling her out to her husband, (laughs) whether or not she knew that. I think she eventually picked up on it. But then also Misu, she can only rely on herself too. She's taking care of her brother. She had to teach herself waterbending. She had to go seek the answers that she sought herself. So it's noteworthy and a huge sign of strength to be able to take care of that kind of stuff on your own without the parade and the, I'm being facetious, but, you know, without pulling everyone (laughs) into your journey, as we see so often in this series, a lot of the adventures that they go through, a lot of the challenges and the goals that they go through are kind of like a team activity. They always have Mm -hmm. someone doing it with them, whether it's mini vacations with each other or saving the world as a group. We rarely see these kinds of stories where it's individuals going up against a lot of adversity. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually struggling with this one as I was thinking about it before recording and afterwards it's not the moral of the issue i think what you said really you really hit the the nail on the round part as my chemistry high school teacher would say <laughs> but i think there's a hidden moral in here or one that's not quite as obvious mm-hmm. maybe to some people and it's that you have to be kind of careful what you tell people and how you talk to them ooh that's the other side of the moral that we just talked yeah. about yeah. Yeah. I think it's when you brought up, and I completely blanked on that, that Zuko reiterated the words of his father. Mm. It was just like, wow, the absolute damage to Zuko that happened in that one line. And who knows how many times Ozai has said that in front of Zuko, to Zuko, behind Zuko's back. Like, mm-hmm. it leads me to believe that it was said several times and that every time Zuko took it to heart until it became his own monologue, his own story, his own description of himself. Yeah. I think that's it. It's just be careful of how you say it when you say it and the mm-hmm. tone in which you say it, which is 
I think something that everyone might need a reminder of every once in a while. That's a good one. Yeah. And if you get hired by the fire prince to go kill someone, don't come back and tell him you didn't kill him. (laughs) Don't come back empty handed. Don't just or at least just say, yeah, he's dead. Just lie or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Take a page out of Aang's book. Just lie about it. It's fine. (laughs) You'll be all set. Do what the Avatar does. Lie. (laughs) That's terrible. This is a great children's series, right? Lie. (laughs) One of the biggest reasons we rag about that so much is because of how many times they aired The Great Divide. It was the one standalone episode, so Nickelodeon always put it on. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, (laughs) bored into our brains. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, that's it. That is The Search Part two. I what an wow. emotional roller coaster, right? Seriously. I can't wait for part three. I'm gonna go read it maybe even today. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right the second. Wrap up this episode, Greg, so we can get reading. <laughs> uh remember, uh, if you have caught up on all of the episodes or need a break from the episodes and want to hang out on Monday or Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can go over to twitch.tv slash booster Greg, where I'll be streaming a game. Or talking for 45 minutes or doing really whatever it is I want to do on my channel because I run it and no one can tell me no except Twitch. (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) Uh, We've been playing a series called Darksiders, which has been so much fun. We actually just got into the second one. I think we're going to do a whole series run is what I'm Mm. deciding. So it's it's great if you like the voice acting, little bits of trivia. There's some great voice actors in there. Uh, I like to make fun of them, do little voices too. So that's a lot of fun. It's just an all around good time. Come hang out with us. It's great. And also Twitter and all that other stuff. Oh, and um, by the way, we didn't talk about it much on here. We mentioned Secret Podcast, patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. If you want to hear what we came up with for one of the faces of Co, mm. just a nice backstory. It's the most recent episode. It was so good. Both. Oh, man. I still think about yours, about your uh, your backstory. It was mm-hmm. so cool. My little tie-in. Yeah. Oh, man. So you can see exactly what we're talking about. $5 or more will get you access to all of the episodes. The Doodle page. We got some a- AMAs in there, which we got to get back on. And a poll. So you can vote for your favorite entry. I think this particular poll has ended, but you can still listen to the episodes. Yeah. And you can find me online at Acorn Bandit. You can also find me on joysons.com where I create enamel pins. That's J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com. If you prefer Etsy, you can find me over there as well at Joyson Studio. That is also the home of our official Avatar of the Podcast pins, where you can find our fluffy best boy Appa mm-hmm. and our favorite blind bandit in pin form. Yeah. Coming up next time. The final chapter in the search. That's right. I can't wait. Let's go read now. Okay, let's go. <clears throat> <laughs> Bye. See you next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the Podcast. Podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 